Hi, friends. Welcome back in. This week, we've got a special episode for you. John and I recently had the honor and pleasure of joining our friend James Reed on his show, Coming Up Clutch with JR. JR, John, and I have done some work together in the past. We've got a lot of respect and love for JR, and we had a great time chatting with him about all things human flourishing. In this particular episode of Coming Up Clutch, you'll hear John and I chat a little bit about the greatest predictors of general well being, satisfaction with life, and fulfillment implications on putting achievement before flourishing and well-being, and a whole lot more. We enjoyed the episode so much that we thought it'd be fun to re-release it and share it with you all as well. So here it is, our conversation on Coming Up Clutch with James Reed. Be sure to check it out and check him out as well. This is Coming Up Clutch with JR helping the world's best in sports, entertainment, and business make winning a lifestyle. What's up? It's JR, and welcome to another episode of Coming Up Clutch. Today, you're getting a two-for-one. We're going to be going behind the scenes with both Dr. Nick Holton and Dr. John Beal. Nick is an international consultant, coach, speaker, and author who's worked with professional and collegiate athletes, Fortune 500 business leaders, educators, and thought leaders. Nick is the co-director of the Human Flourishing Efforts at the Shipley School, co-host of the podcast Flourish FM alongside Dr. John Beal, and the founder of the Anti-Fragile Athlete. And if that's not enough, he's also peak performance coach with the Flow Research Collective. And Dr. John Beal, he's also a peak performance coach. He's a researcher, consultant, writer, keynote speaker, and an educator whose research focuses on human flourishing. He's held research and teaching positions at leading universities and schools around the world, including Harvard and the University of Oxford in London. John also has over 30 peer-reviewed research articles and book chapters in leading academic journals, books, and media outlets, including the New York Times. John is also a co-editor of four books on philosophy and education, including the future of education. You're getting two brilliant minds today. I had the honor of working side by side with Nick and John during my collaboration with the Flow Research Collective back in the fall of 22, and I just could not wait to get them both on the show. So today, we're going to talk about what is human flourishing and how you can experience it. Talk about the two greatest predictors of general well-being, satisfaction of life, and fulfillment, and what you can't miss if you want to have more life satisfaction and fulfillment in your daily life. And hey, if you're a guy listening to this, just want to make sure, because this is the final couple weeks before we shut down this invitation, but hey, if you want to show up as your best more often in 2023, if you want to come up clutch more often this year for your team, for your family, for the people counting on you, then head on over to jamesreed.com forward slash club, C-L-U-B, and check out what we have for you. And before I forget, if you're empowered by the show and learning something, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out when we drop new episodes and share it. Play the hero to your family, friends, and teammates by giving them the link to this or sending them to comingupclutch.com. And when you go and post about this episode on social, make sure to tag me, Nick, and John. All right, here we go. Let's get Dr. Nick Holton and Dr. John Beal live on the mic. 
Dr. Nick, Dr. John, say what's up to our coming up clutch crew, fellas. What's up, y'all? Glad to be here with you. What's up, everyone? So, John. <laughs> I can't call that so right different from. coming out of, yeah, a proper, a proper British accent delivery of that stuff is just. I can't pull off what's up, man. I wish I could, but I'm not going to try and be all hip and be like, yeah, what's up, crew? Yeah, I'll try. It's a great That's attempt, just... though, John. Yeah. Great hey, attempt. for you listening to this episode right now, we, we had a, a sweating laugh, as I'm calling it, before I hit record. So I'm just warning you. We're already in that laughing mood. So it's a perfect segue, John, and just because you had so many issues with those damn blinds. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and kick off our segment by you sharing your most embarrassing moment as an adult and what, if anything, you did to overcome it. My most embarrassing moment as an adult. Wow. So many come to mind. It's embarrassing. But uh, here's, here's a, a collection come to mind. In fact, a whole kind of period of my life, which was just kind of embarrassing, comes to mind. I used to play for the the Harvard Dudley House Jazz Orchestra. It's like the grad band jazz orchestra, right? And I was way out of my league in this band. I was honored to get through the audition and get, you know, get asked to play. I went to the audition. So, so I did a two-year, like, I was a fellow in philosophy for two years at Harvard during my PhD. And I, uh, the second day there, I saw this ad, like, audition for the Dudley House Jazz Band. I auditioned. I was shocked to get an email the next day saying, hey, I want you to join. I was like, what the hell? I, that was, I was awful, but okay played in this band for two years. And I was so out of my league that I would like, there's a set of stairs in Dudley House at Harvard where you walk up the stairs and I feel this sinking feeling in my stomach of embarrassment as I walk in because it was like always just this feeling of being way out of my league. Anyway, there was one time where we were, you know, playing just a jam night in the cafe there and I played a solo and it was a really tough song in my defense, but still. And the trumpeter who was flawless turned to me at the end of the solo and said, dude, what key were you playing? <laughs> you, I played. I played in the wrong. I soloed in the wrong key at a gig, right? Oh, and it, and it was jazz. So some people were like, "Oh, dude, that's like new age jazz." That's <laughs> nobody knows the difference. <laughs> oh, some, some people were like, "That was that was red hot, man." I was smoking, but the band were like, "Dude, what key were you in? What are you doing here?" Like after this, just see you later, man. Anyway, how I how I dealt with that, how I dealt with that kind of period playing in that band was I would just practice my ass off. Like I would go to the music studios regularly and practice three hours. Like after rehearsal, sometimes I would go away feeling shame and just go and practice relentlessly. And that's where I learned the notion of deliberate practice. Yeah. Like practicing yeah. very goal-oriented, focused practice to particular time points with clear goals, monitoring progress. So that had major benefits for my musicianship and skills in, in, in knowing about deliberate practice. But damn, that's that good. was... Traumatic. That's good. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I could. <laughs> I, would have, I would have been the person in the audience going, man, that's some good new stuff. I've never heard right? this before. That's right. Oh, Me too. man. All right, Nick, you got, you got to follow that craziness. Yeah. I don't know that it would necessarily qualify as an adult experience, but it's definitely a sports experience. It's the first yeah. one that came to mind. We were in, I was a senior in high school and we were in, we'll just call it a real big match. I was a pretty good soccer player, high level club player, could have played college. So I was kind of, let's say kind of the mark for this opposing team. And a dude got under my skin. We were making a comeback. They were a dirty team to begin with. And mm. we scored a goal. And as I was going by him, he said something to me. I turned around, I gave him the double bird. Right. So like oh, F you, you know, I, you're right. Ref catches it, comes over, gives me a yellow card. At the time, that meant I had to go off. Those were like the state rules. I'm born and raised in Michigan. 
and it was towards the end of the game, we were making a comeback. So that like that hurt my team is the simple yeah. way to say it, right? Come off the field and after the game and my coach and some other parents asked me what happened and I lied, right? I was embarrassed to what I did. So I lied mm. about it mm. and I lied within earshot of my father. Oh, and so he was <laughs> and credit to him. Actually, he was super cool about it because he didn't do anything publicly. But when we got home, he had a real conversation with me about it and just, you know, character and virtue and like those sorts of things. And, you know, yeah. he saw me do it. He knew I did it. <laughs> he didn't really yeah. care about the double birds. He cared that I lied about it to my coach and some mm. people after. Right. So anyway, how I remedied it, I called my coach later that night. I felt super guilty, messed up. He was cool about it. We had just a good conversation that I think helped, you know, I always use the phrase warm demander and my high school coach was that way. Like he'd, he'd tell you your shit stinks, but if you came to him and you're like, I screwed up and I'm trying to grow, he was always real good about it. Man. Hey, you know what? I'm just, I'm just glad your dad actually parented. Cause you know, that's yeah. very rare these days. Yeah. You know, yeah, he did a good, you know, I'm not proof of it. My sisters are, but yeah, I think he did a good job. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Cool. Well, Hey, Nick, while we got you live on the mic right now, just share how you got, I, I introduced both of you guys offline. Sure. Just share the one minute version of your story, how you got to where you're at today. Yeah. Hey, John, we'll go um, to you and then we'll get going. Sure. Yeah. The one minute version, and this will be one minute, even though I'm going to start in sixth grade, but took my <laughs> little sister out, coach her some soccer. Later that day, she balled out on some dude that was twice her size and was thrilled yeah. about it. And I saw that and was like, well, hell, I like that feeling. I did that. Yeah. I helped her be happy. I helped her get better. I helped her level up, right? Or so I thought. By ninth grade, I did a job shadow with my uncle who was an athletic director. I saw him on the other side of really badass teacher-student relationships or student-athlete relationships Yeah, and said, man, that seems like the same thing I experienced with my sister, but the, you know, kind of the adult version of it, if you will. Yeah. So I said, I want to go into education. I want to have that feeling all the time. Fast forward, decade of educating, not what I thought it was going to be, even though I was in some awesome schools and communities, but the system, and in my opinion, I think John's too, is seriously effed. And that led me to go back, get my master's degree, didn't get any answers there. So that led me to get my PhD. That eventually introduced me to positive psychology, human flourishing, flow, intrinsic motivation, optimization, basically that entire field. And from there, it was just, well, I can understand and apply this science in a bunch of different contexts, whether it's elite athletes or educators or executives. And so that's what I've been doing awesome. pretty much since midway through my PhD, 2014. Awesome. Love it. Love it. John, let's get you real quick, man. If you could pull it off, just no more off key stuff, man. Just, just, give, us, <laughs> just give us your I'll try, story. I'll try my best. I'll try my best to keep it, to keep it straight. Well, I won't go back to sixth grade. I'll just, I'll start <laughs> way later than that. So many embarrassing moments after sixth grade. I did a PhD in philosophy, which was not on the kind of stuff I work on now. And then after that, I kind of juggled two careers as a professional guitarist and, and a teacher and lecturer in philosophy. Well, lecturer in philosophy, just at university then. And then by accident, I got asked to go and teach philosophy in a school. That school had an educational research center, which I got involved with. That was mostly educational neuroscience then. And that led to me getting into educational research. Several years down the line, I'd learned about this movement of in education towards promoting flourishing in education and the view that education is among the aims, or if not the central aim of education. I became really interested in this and I wanted to try and find where I could, what really meant a lot to me in educational research and where I could, you know, make some 
make a contribution with a background in philosophy. And I'd studied human flourishing. You can't really study philosophy without studying human flourishing in the work of the ancient Greeks, for example. So I started working on research in human flourishing, particularly in education in 2019. And that's led to kind of where I am now, which is I, I'm predominantly a, a researcher on work on human flourishing, particularly the philosophy of it, particularly in educational contexts, and a coach focusing on the promotion, I feel, of human flourishing, flow being one of those areas, and you know, doing things like co-hosting a podcast with Nick on flourishing. So I mean, really everything I do now is on researching, studying, and promoting human flourishing in various areas of life. Well, wait, all right, the guitar, so the guitar gonna... got left to one side after that embarrassing moment. <laughs> well, put that away. I, I can't say I don't blame you, but I've never heard <laughs> you play guitar, so <laughs> I can't, you know, I'm, I'm gonna keep it light. I'm gonna keep it light. <laughs> all right, so fellas, I want to dive right into this flourishing thing. As you guys know, a big tagline that I live by, I work with my clients. It, it's this whole winning isn't a result; it's a lifestyle, and. The, in my world, in your worlds, we're seeing this big gap. And, and unfortunately, I feel like the gap's getting wider between success and fulfillment. So first of all, could you guys just, either one of you or both of you, just give us a taste of what truly human flourishing is? Because I know, John, when we were talking about this, you're saying, look, it's really combining peak performance and overwell-being and satisfaction. But I want to hear from you because it's a new term for a lot of people. So right. go ahead and give us a de your definition of it. My own definition or kind of what research is currently moving towards? Well, I, I would prefer what research is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> let's go with that. Let's go with what, what the research is currently suggesting. So the kind of the, the methodology that research is in flourishing pursue and have always pursued really is to identify the things in life that you do for the pursuit of nothing else, like an end in itself. You just do that thing. With no further goal in mind, it's called, called a kind of autotelic end sometimes from two words, auto meaning self and telos meaning goal. And that goes right back to like Aristotle. He was like, what's the thing that we do for no further reason? The ultimate end in itself, and it was flourishing or eudaimonia. And flourishing research today follows a similar methodology, but it looks for multiple areas of life that you do just for the sake of doing that thing, such as you know pursuing relationships, being happy, being satisfied with your life, fulfilling your potential, experiencing flow. And then trying to figure out ways that you can enhance those as much as possible in your life. Now, what no researcher says is there's some kind of baseline that you must meet in each of those domains to flourish. It's not like a score you have to make. It's not like you hit seven on the scorecard there for your flourishing. But there is a kind of a vague account of, well, all these areas of your life or several of them really are suboptimal or you're really, you know, depleted in your in your close relationships, which suggests to us that your your well-being is probably really low in that area. And as a whole, you may be languishing rather than flourishing. Whereas if, if several areas of your life that you pursue just for the sake of pursuing them are going really well, typically you could say that person has high well-being or is, is flourishing. Now, the distinction between well-being and flourishing is, is complex, but some define flourishing as kind of, so for example, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, they define flourishing as where your individual well-being is high, but also your well-being in relation to others and the context in where you are is also high. So flourishing is then defined interpersonally among a community of people. So you could have high well-being, but not be flourishing. But if you're mm -hmm. flourishing, typically that also follows from that, that you have high well-being. It's different in something like positive psychology, which says that if your well-being is really high, that that's what it is to flourish. If you've got high psychological well-being, then that's by definition flourishing. So that's it in a nutshell. And the kinds of areas of life that theories focus on that we should develop are fulfillment of potential, flow, close social relationship, 
happiness and positive emotions, character strengths or character virtues, mental and physical health, and so on. So, Nick, I'm going to... Do you have anything to add to that, Nick? Because I'm going to put you on the spot here in a second. Go for it. I got a bunch of different thoughts. I mean, Johnny did a great job. I'm just thinking of other relevant points to your listeners. I won't even, you don't even need to put me on the spot. I'm just going to go if it's all right. But like, go baby. I think, I think something interesting that John brings up, just knowing a, a bit that we do about your audience, John just referenced a bunch of different elements of two different primary models for human flourishing, right? Harvard, UPenn. What's super interesting about the Harvard model is achievement isn't on there. Mm. Success isn't on there, right? And what did John mention earlier? Like being willing and good at and engaging in things we do for their own sake, right? So how would I translate this for your listeners? The gap between fulfillment and success is often because we are relying on the end goal of success, something not Mm. done for its own sake, something done for a very specific outcome, right? Whereas when you look at Kobe and LeBron and Serena and, you know, all these other like incredible famous athletes who are literally some of the best I ever do it in the sport, what do they love? Yeah, they love winning. Sure, they love getting stats, but what do they really love? They love the game. They love the process, right? That is an autotelic experience. So I'll, I'll backtrack from there and say, like, I actually love the, the simple definition that you started with and that Johnny mentioned to you in a previous conversation, like it's well-being, generally feeling good, not all the time, right? But generally feeling good and being well, and it's performing optimally in areas of meaning, mm. right? And I would just add that last piece, areas of meaning, because if you perform optimally in something that you're forced into or don't value, which we've all seen, especially in the sports world, right? Kids that are just forced in, that ain't going to provide the same level of satisfaction as things that are truly autotelic, right? Self-concordant, intrinsically aligned, et cetera. I'm curious though, when you say areas of meaning, so Mm -hmm. I've heard the stories they're rare, but I'm just curious from the science standpoint and just the possibility of that people are forced into positions. They are forced mm-hmm. into roles. They could be performing optimally there. Maybe there isn't meaning in, at the front end because they were forced into it, but is there a possibility to find meaning, attach certain meaning to it, and then you have all the components of what it is to flourish. So John, jump in if you want, but I'll say yes and, okay? So yes, there is ways, I think, reasonable, evidence-informed ways to find meaning in a variety of circumstances. And even if you wanna go beyond the evidence, let's go to Viktor Frankl, right? Let's go to philosophy, let's go to social science more generally, right? You don't always control the experience that you have, right? Or the circumstances you find yourself in, but plenty of people will argue you can control the way you think about it and make meaning from it and respond to it. The and is I don't want that to sound like just suck up and deal with your circumstances, right? And try to make meaning from it. But the reality of the situation is the cab driver in New York City could have the most meaningful job in the world to that. There is a subjective element I think, provided that there is some sort of positive impact on something that transcends the self, a team, an organization, a community, a family, right? A friend group. It's just, there is an altruistic aspect to it. Does that make sense? hundred percent. I want to, I want to add something to that here as well. And that I've been thinking about this view for a while and developing it. And it's a view I'm becoming more and more attracted to. And it's the idea that, so I think that with meaning, 
someone can find their life meaningless, but be wrong, objectively wrong because of their state of mind way of being. So an example often given in positive psychology, for example, by Seligman is Abraham Lincoln, who found his life said to find his life very meaningless because he suffered from a really depressive disposition, right? And you can think of many examples in history of people who are, say, clinically or chronically depressed, and so you don't find their life meaningful when it clearly is. So I think you can speak objectively and tell someone, look, your life's really meaningful, you're just not seeing it this way. I mean, you might not say it to them, but you can see that there's a, there's a mismatch there. I'm not sure the inverse holds, though. I don't think you could go to someone who finds their life really meaningful and say, your life's meaningless. And and actually tell them that, given the subjectivity, the role of subjectivity and meaning, that it's about things like telling your own narrative of what something plays in your, you know, the role of something in your life. So for example, in the, in the taxi driver case, someone could find that way of life meaningless because it just doesn't connect with any of their desires, any of their character strengths. Maybe they had a bad experience driving when they were younger. Someone could find that experience deeply meaningful for many reasons. Think about, for example, London taxi drivers that take what's regarded as the hardest test in the world by some, where you have to learn multiple ways to get from any place in London to any other place within a kind of three-mile radius of central London. It's extraordinary, this test they take. It's been studied by like people who work on memory palaces and so on. Many reasons for that being a deeply meaningful experience. So I don't think you can say it the other way around. The only exception to that would be people living evil lives. And again, Nick and I have discussed this with several of our guests on Flourish FM. I'm not sure an evil person could live a meaningful life. I think it's a problem for your account of meaning if you say, that person, hey, that serial killer lived a deeply meaningful life. So I think in that case, in the case of evil actions, you could say to someone that, or of someone, that life was not meaningful. So Nick, you mentioned intrinsic motivation and, and I brought mm-hmm. that up on this show. And I'm curious where you find purpose in this discussion because... I, Here's an exa- two examples. I actually just talked about it on a recent five-minute drill of mine. My dad, like, he- here's a guy who is fighting for something. His health is horrible. His absolute health is horrible. For most people at 81 years old, they would be already six feet under. But he has chosen to fight for his grandkids. And that is fueling him to, although under suboptimal circumstances, and that's an understatement, He's still pushing forward. I go to an athlete I worked with, and, and I shared this story. My listeners are probably like, geez, here we go again, JR. But an athlete that I started working with made a complete turnaround in his performance simply after he dug in further to why the heck am I even playing? There was, again, to your point, Nick, there wasn't any end goal. There, it was simply like, let's strip everything back and let's find out why you're playing in the first place. So does this make sense to you that you're seeing people flourish, if you will, under, in a lot of cases, adverse circumstances, because there is meaning from simply asking the question, why? I'm curious. I know I'm putting a very simplistic wrapper on this, but I want to bring it up since it's been brought up so many times on the show. It's a great question. I think there's there's a lot of different things we can tease out from that, right? But let's start with just conceptualization. So to me, if I'm thinking about a question of why, that is conceptually to me different than purpose. They could be the same, right? Like they're synonymous in some ways. But if I'm thinking about the research, and this goes to your question, I understand purpose as really a subcomponent or a pathway to meaning, 
right? It's mm. about impact. It's about contribution. It's about finding what you're good at, what you like, what you're interested in and using that to have that positive impact. It's, I always say like, it's a bit of the me and it's a bit of the we and finding mm. some synergy and unity between those things. Right. But the why question is still really important, right? Am I doing this thing because it brings me pleasant emotion? Am I doing this thing because my parents seem to be proud of me when I do it? Am I doing this thing because I'm trying to get out of a particular circumstance or area, make X amount of dollars and to get my family out of this thing, right? And I don't want to provide value judgment on whether any one of those is naturally better or worse, but I think more often than not, what you're going to see is that the best of the best have a ratio of both intrinsic and extrinsic, but you're going to see a predominantly intrinsic profile. They know what their why is. They know why, what they're doing each day. It's oriented around that core sense of purpose, right? And they execute a calendaring system and recovery system and habit system that reinforces all of that. Now, that said, does that mean they're flourishing? Okay. Well, you know, I spent 12 years in LA. There's a very fa famous athlete there who's had a lot of success by all accounts, not a great human being, right? It, does that mean that person was flourishing? Well, that comes back to John's point a little bit. I'm not so sure. And, and this is really what I want to say. Success on the field of competition is not this automatic route to well-being and life satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment. The right. two single, right? What did I say earlier? It's not even on Harvard's measure. It doesn't even get counted, right? which I think says something. The two single greatest predictors, I think, globally. Now, again, are you measuring flourishing? Are you measuring life satisfaction? Are you measuring happiness? Are you measuring subjective well-being, right? Like keeping all of that aside, the two, I think, most ubiquitous, greatest predictors of just general well-being, satisfaction with life, fulfillment, are meaning and the quality of our relationships, by right? social connection, community, intimacy, friendship, all those sorts of things, right? Again, like we might be over-indexing on success, right? To be honest. Mm. I'm so, you see the smile on my face? <laughs> it's because when I started this podcast, so this is a performance-based podcast, right? And I put underneath this umbrella of performance, three pillars, that is mind, money, and relationships. And my stance from, from start has been, if mind, money, or relationships, if any one of those three is off, you're going to be off. And here you guys go talking about relationships. And Nick, you just got finished saying the two predictors here, meaning and quality of relationships. So guys, how do we approach this then? Because to be honest with you, the corporate world, the pro athlete world, we're getting relationships wrong. We're living in the state of, okay, when I'm successful, when I get the big deal, mm -hmm. when I yeah. sign the big deal, or when I do the merger, what fill in the blank, comma, yeah. then I'll be able to flourish in my relationships and take care of my family and fill in the blank. So how do we flip the script, if you will, if we're going to live by what the, the science and the research is saying to you guys? Well, I think you've pointed to a good example there of where you have what we defined earlier as an end in itself, something autotelic, a relationship or love or close bonds, whatever you, whatever way you want to express that. The means or one of the means towards getting there and a common mistake I think people make, which is confusing a means with an end in terms of how they're living their lives. So focusing on the means rather than the end. 
I'll focus on my relationships in my retirement. When I retire, I'll travel the world. When I retire, I'll really be truly happy then. Until then, I'm just going to slog it out, doing this day in, day out, and not kind of realizing along the way that what they're focusing on is the means to the end far more than the end in itself. And the thing with money is money, it's hard to see money as functioning as end in itself because you can do so many different things with it, right? It's not that it has some particular end. If you've, you've got money, it gives you so many different opportunities, so it can't really be the end. It's, it's a stage towards some further end. And I mean, what research suggests is that having significant, a good level of financial material stability prevents languishing or could be a buffer to prevent languishing and, and suffering and low well-being. But mm-hmm. above a certain level, it doesn't tend to increase your well-being much more because once you've reached a level where all of your financial material needs are met, it, it's not really doing much for you. Right, you want it to support those other ends. So, my view on money within the model you described would be that money plays a vital, or, or rather, not money, but so much financial material stability plays a vital role in supporting well-being, but a supporting role only. But many people confuse money or particular work they're doing for money with an end in itself, and focus all of their energy on that, or a huge amount of it, to the detriment of things that are ends in themselves, un- you know, uncontroversially, like their relationships, their physical health, their mental health, developing their characters and so on, feeling happiness, the positive emotions. And that can lead to languishing where they've, they're aiming at the wrong thing or spending a disproportionate amount of their time on the wrong thing. A hundred percent. I mean, you, you talk to, to mo again, I gotta be careful what I say here, but most athletes, let's just pick on athletes right now. Money is the means to the end. It's, it's, if you say, well, I, I, I gotta get that money. I gotta get paid. I got, to your point, John, like, and I think it was with you guys that I learned there was the research about like past like $74,000 a year. It was some like astronomically low number that look, once you get to this number, do you guys know what the exact number was? I can't remember. No, so let, was, let, yeah, let's go down this route because it's actually a little more complicated. There was okay, yeah, let's go. Like like twelve, eighteen months, maybe two years. I don't think two years, John. You might remember, but there's there's an article that's been published that contradicts that article you're talking about. The number oh, okay. in question was in fact seventy five k. Okay, but. That's very different in Los Angeles than it is in, you know, like West Michigan where I'm sitting now. Right. So like some of that is relativity and this is where the world of well-being research gets really complicated. Right. Did you ask at one time point? Did you ask at multiple time points? You know, did you ask life satisfaction, subjective well-being, happiness, et cetera. Right. And the way that this other author constructed his study. Now, my understanding is we haven't actually seen the raw data is he actually suggests that past that point, you are going to see increases in specific measures, right? So types of well-being or happiness or whatever it might be. And in his case, I think it was life satisfaction, but it was mm-hmm. a year and a half ago I read this paper, right? John's point is still well-made, right? Like the key here, I don't think is actually money. It is material stability. It is autonomy right? And it is opportunity to experience some pleasant emotion and avoid toxic, traumatic, unhealthy, negative Mm -hmm. emotion. I really want to emphasize that because I don't mean to avoid all unpleasantness. Like any good athlete or executive knows that's part of the game, right? And we actually find out more and more on our show that like 
almost every expert brings up the appropriate role and utility of unpleasantness and well-being and flourishing and all sorts of different things, right? So it's an important nuance. But to John's point, if you don't have to worry about where's food coming from, right? Do I have a home to live in? Okay. And this is also going to vary globally because our standards of material stability are very different than other parts of the world, but those parts of the world are more satisfied. They're happier. They have more meaning, right? So like, it's a really, sure. really complicated question, but the simple takeaway, as John said, is like, don't over-index on money. Think about the ends, right? Not the means. Right? So good. So yeah, good. And, and Nick Nick makes a really, really important point. Many, many of the, but one in particular is relative to where you are in the world. Because I mean, another thing that happiness research has identified is that human beings can't help but compare themselves to others. We, we can't escape this, right? So if you're living in, you know, Manhattan and earning millions, living next door to someone who's earning twice what you're earning, has a much nicer car, much nicer apartment, seems to be living a much better life than you, it's very hard to snap out of that feeling of envy. You can go, you can engage in a whole way of life that tries to do it, you know, perhaps engaging in, in Buddhist practices, for example, to try and dissolve sense of ego you have. But research in economics and happiness studies more broadly has identified this is one of the reasons why you have lower levels of self-reported well-being in very affluent parts of the world, because as the competition rises in various ways, there's a feeling of envy, a feeling of I'm not doing as well as my peers here. I want, you know, I want to struggle with that. So even if you've got very high financial material stability and you're living in an expensive city, if you're quite low on the scale compared to everyone else, that can affect you in a way that is quite hard to overcome. If, if I can dovetail on that, 2018, the United Nations put out, well, it puts out an annual world happiness report, but the 2018 issue specifically had a full chapter on satisfaction in the workplace globally, collected a ton of different data, right? Lots of different displays, right? interesting for anyone to dig into, and it's a, it's a free download. But to John's point, it noted sort of the top 10 predictors of workplace satisfaction. Number one, interpersonal relationships. Like huge shocker. We have to like the people we work with and for and spend all this time with. Right. Number two, that the job is interesting. Both of those were just under a medium effect size. Right. Whereas number three dropped all the way down to a small effect size. Number three was pay. How was pay split up to Johnny's point? Half of it is objective. Do I have means? Can I get a help? Right. All the things that just kind yeah. of help us feel normal. But the other half was subjective. What am I making compared to the people around me? Ooh, I love this. Boy, by the way, J John just had like a oh. 747 just. <laughs> yeah, I had to close it. I had to close it again because it's so noisy, isn't it? I'm lucky to hear no sirens so far, but man, it's but, hot today. It's like Cambridge, summer Cambridge, in November. Cambridge Express. Yeah, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a heat wave here right now. But that can go down as my embarrassing moment. Oh, John, I absolutely love you, man. All right. So guys, on a serious note, this is why I brought you two in here. Because I feel like, and I put this lightly in quotes, thought leadership out there. We're very heavy in concepts. We're very light on the science behind how we should do things, how we should live, what we should be implementing day to day. You guys have just brought some amazing backed up context into this discussion. So I want to flip it to practicality here. And I want to get into anti-fragility before we, we kick you two out of here. But practically speaking, guys, what's your message? Knowing those two predictors, meaning quality of relationships, 
What's your message to the people listening today to start putting this into action? What could they not miss if they are going to lean into meaning, going to lean into quality relationships? Because again, this the data shows it. There's a lot of dissatisfied people out there right now. And just go to social media if you don't believe us. Mm -hmm. I'd love to jump in here. I mean, step one, what's your recipe for a good life, right? That has to start with the ingredients. John's given you a bunch in his responses today, right? Go to the Harvard or the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, look at their model, but also go to UPenn's Positive Psychology Center, look at their model. You have the essence of the ingredients, right? That for most people are going to lead to some level of conceptualization of a good life. But there is no piece of science that I'm aware of that's really true for all people all the time in all situations. So like, what is your unique recipe? That's good. Then when you think about the ingredients, how much of each ingredient do you need? And I want to emphasize need, not how much of each ingredient do you crave, because that is not the same thing as experiencing well-being, happiness, satisfaction. We crave a lot of stuff that's bad for us. Like I have a terrible sweet tooth, for example. Right. So Me when too. you think about recipe, <laughs> okay. yeah, ditto. Yeah. Yeah. You think about <laughs> yeah. recipe. I can't wait to eat a cookie, man, after this. <laughs> sure. Sorry. Think about recipe. You think about ingredients, right? How much of each ingredient? And then it's about intentionality. Cook your recipe, mm -hmm. right? Like if at the end of the day, you know, like you, let's do a, a case study. Right. So you mentioned got to get my money. Like, let's take professional athletes. Cause my first thought was, well, not high school or club or collegiate athletes, although collegiate's a little different now too with NIL, but initially uh, yeah. it was like, you know, love of the game sort of stuff, but professional athletes. Okay. Well, if money is so much more important to you than say the goal of winning a Super Bowl. Okay. Then be that star quarterback that gets the biggest contract in history every single time. But if winning the Super Bowl and being a part of that team and like having a lasting legacy and like the relationships associated with it is more important to you, then guess what? Listen, this is coming from Michigan State grad. I'm not a Tom Brady guy, but I love the way he's taken cuts here and there to keep teams together, right? And yeah. to get money to other people where it goes. And so that's just a simple example, right? Like what is most important to you? And to John's point earlier, when does it hit a point of diminishing returns? Right. Yeah. And then just figure out how to put that recipe together. And that that's a whole nother conversation. A lot of the work John and I do, but recipe ingredients, right? Then Love intentionality, it. bake it. Love the simplicity of that too. Love it. Yeah. You were kind of getting, you're moving around. Do you have something to add there? <laughs> no, I mean, I'll add, I'll add to that. I think those are all great points. I don't disagree with anything. And I'll, I'll add some of those, some things to what, what Nick's just said, including, you know, eating lots of cookies is an important part of that recipe flourishing life. Anyway, no, on a serious note, I'll grow up, grow up. Right. So I mentioned earlier, these kind of end in themselves, right? So I think that a, a good kind of a good recipe, if, yeah, I like that word. Like if, if we want to kind of, how, how does any human being flourish? Now to do that, as Nick said, you've got to attend to their individual differences because the individual differences amongst people are so vast. And part of the journey towards living a good life is identifying what works best for you in terms of your own character strengths, increasing your own self-understanding, what you like to do. So part of that journey, you'll identify what makes you different from other people. But nonetheless, you look at the domains of well-being that research identified we pursue as ends in themselves and look to enhance those in your life as much as possible without any one of them being pushed so far that others 
suffer because people will vary in how much they want each one. So there's eight domains you can extract from positive psychology and the human flourishing program at Harvard. Domain areas of life we pursue as ends themselves. Happiness and other positive emotions like joy, laughter, and so on. Good, close social relationships, meaning and slash or purpose. Flow, accomplishment, health, mental and physical. Character in the sense of developing strengths or character virtues, becoming a good person and fulfillment in the sense of fulfillment of your own potential and fulfillment in the sense of life satisfaction. And That's how good. much a person values each of those in their life will vary. Someone will really want to value the accomplishing side of life or the flow side of life or focus on their relationships, a reduced effort in others. But you shouldn't be devoting so much time to one that, for example, your health, mental or physical or both suffers or devoting so much time to your work that your relationships suffer or the other way around, devoting so much time to your relationships that you're, you're really not enjoying your work at all and so on, right? You should try and find a balance. There is no set level that says you are flourishing. You've got to figure that out for yourself. That's and good. the ways in which the areas you find happiness, the areas in which you find meaning, which kind of relationships you find most value in are going to vary. But use That's that good. as a kind of framework, then find your own way through it. That's good. This is, this is ex exclamation points across the screen because it, it is, guys, we all know, and I'm speaking on behalf of the people listening to this, the message out there on social media right now is not this. It's no. you have to do this. You should do this. You here are the five specific things you need to do to figure. I'm like, no, that's not it. Well, I mean, I will say yes, and <laughs> I do think there are certain things that all human beings should be, do if be, they really want to enhance their well-being over time. One of the most important is to cult really devote a lot of time, energy, effort to cultivating healthy, close relationships, and that takes work and it takes time. And it's it's and it takes increasing work, I think, as you get older, because it gets harder to form yeah. you know, new relationships, be it friendships or romantic relationships, as you get older, because people become more and more busy and have more and more commitments to responsibilities. It, it, as, as you you know, we're all similar age. It takes hard. It's harder and harder to meet up with friends as you get older to make these arrangements. Right, you've got to really work at that stuff. Yeah, that's the one I would say. You know, that's something which, which you could say. I think to any human being, you really need to focus time, effort, and energy on this. And here's some good ways you could do it. But again, it will vary culture to culture and so on. It's good. All I right, boys, I, know, I know we're pushing the limit here. Do we have time for a little taste of anti-fragility or do we have to wrap it up? I'm good, we, but you should go to Nick got primarily time. on that because that's Nick's. I got time. That's yeah, Nick's. I mean, we can even so, we can even roll with that a little bit more if you like. But So I want to talk about it because I feel like athletes are hearing a lot of this these days it's coming up more and more in the context of younger kids coming up but athletes and executives and leaders being accused of being too soft or too fragile if you will i want to bring that up and i know that's a kind of a blanket statement here but this whole concept of anti-fragility and just having that core around you nick i'm going to go to you first on this you have your company called the anti-fragile athlete could you speak to it? D define it the term first, and then sure. let's just unpack sure. that a little bit before we kick you guys out. Sure. Well, there's a nice natural, I think, bridge from everything John just mentioned here too, when it comes to not even necessarily just balance, but, but synergy and richness and wholeness, right? Mm. So that's an important segue into like the definition of conceptualization. We pull on Nassim Taleb's work right? Which is conceptually that there's fragile adversity strikes. We break, right? There's mm -hmm. resilient adversity strikes. We navigate it. We come out the other side and then there's anti-fragile, 
we don't just navigate it and come out the other side. We actually grow our capacity because of it. Mm, okay. Good. So that's the conceptualization, right? There's a really, really important distinction here because anti-fragile can very easily sound like suck it up attitude, deal with right. it attitude, right? Like I hear right. you, there's some situations where people need to develop anti-fragility and maybe they are a little soft. There's also a shit ton of toxicity out there in the sports world where people are getting the wrong messages. So let me be very clear about this. What we're talking about is well-being. What we're talking about is mental health, right? What we're not talking about is well-being and mental health that is only experienced as constant pleasantness. Mm -hmm. There is an association very clear. I mentioned it, John and I hear it every conversation, right? Between mental health, well-being, and the engagement with the ability to endure and navigate unpleasant affect, unpleasant emotion, right? Safely. I'm not talking about trauma, although there's interesting literature in the post-traumatic growth world as well. But what we're talking about is really meeting in the middle where we can take athletes and their coaches, help them understand how they develop distress tolerance, responses to stress, right? Framing techniques, all those sorts of things. But we can also take the athletes who are actually a little too rigid, right? Like they are, mm. what's, what's anti-fragile? It's not rigidity. That's going to snap you, right? Mm. We want to be able to bend, but don't break. And so the athletes on the other end, they need to learn vulnerability. They need to learn emotional intelligence, right? They need to learn mindfulness. They need to learn cognitive. They need to learn all the things that kind of bring them back into that well-being space as well, not just to like grit it out and grind our teeth. I don't know, maybe some, some of your folks like them. I'm not a big, like David Goggins guy. I respect yeah, no. the hell out of them, but I don't, yeah. I don't love, the, I don't think there's a great science behind that messaging, right? As much as respect as I have for his accomplishments. So like yeah. anti-fragility is really about human flourishing, but growing, we always use the reference of the lobster. Lobsters to grow, they, sh they get just uncomfortable, right? And they go under a rock and they shed their shell the tissue then expands and they grow a new shell. And this can take weeks at a time, right? That's why the oldest lobsters are always the biggest lobsters, for instance. Mm -hmm. Well, we always tell people like, what is the impetus for the lobster to grow? It's got to feel uncomfortable. It's actually respond it's that it's what growth is, right? And any athlete understands that, any executive understands that. But enduring unpleasantness should not be associated with an absence of well-being, nor should it be done to a toxic extent, right? And traumatic. So good. Extent. Does that make sense? Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. Again, I, I, this is why I was excited of having you two on to unpack all of this because I, and I'm glad you brought up, brought up David Goggins. There's a couple other people that have been brought up to in the show and it's, it's like be disciplined. Okay. Why? How? Yeah. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what unpack, why, why should I even be disciplined? Like, it, we're missing that conversation that I knew you yes. two would bring into this in the context of fulfillment and flourishing and what have you. So Nerd, nerds like John and I can't help but be nuanced, whether that's good or bad. I'm not so sure, but hopefully today it was a good thing. Well, it's a sign of a true expert. I love nuance. My audience we loves nuance. You know, this is why they show up every week. You know, you're like, what are your numbers? I'm like, they're, they've been staying the same and growing. It's the same crew. They're just bringing yeah, well, more they're... people to the party. Like, that's the way, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, they want to hear from people like you. So, yeah. cool. man, you guys are the best. Well, it's been All our right. pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us.
Yeah, thanks awesome for money. spending a couple extra minutes too. Now, quickly, where can we find you two? Obviously, I'm promoting the Flourish FM podcast. Nick, I know you have your anti-fragile athlete. So besides me sharing links to your websites and what have you, where Nick, where can we find you? And then John, share where we can find you as well. So you can find out more about the anti-fragile athlete by going to the antifragileacademy.com or you can reach out to me directly. I'll give JR my email. You can put it in the show notes and whatnot. Okay. Won't make you write it down. You can find me on okay. pretty much all social platforms, just Dr. Nick Holton, Instagram, Twitter, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, all the things. Okay. Sweet. Mr. Johnny, Dr. John, as I called you guys at the beginning of this. Uh, I love the way Americans say doctor, then your first name. I'm getting used to this now. Dr. John, Dr. Nick. I keep Honestly, it's taking me a while to get used to this, but I quite like it. <laughs> John, to defend myself, growing up in Chicago, it was always Dr. Beal. But this oh. is what happens. This is what happens when you spend a lot of time in the South. It's all Mr. Mr. John or Dr. John. Like that's just how it works. So I, I can't I can't unlearn it now. So. Oh, is that right? Is that so? Uh huh. What? So is it is it a more common thing in in the Southern states than the Northern states to do first name? In fact, yeah. To this day, my sister. I throw my sister on the bus. My sister calls my father in law Mr. Hodge. Like, does it call wow. Mike? Does it? It's it's more of a proper Nick. You probably relate to this, being where you're from. Yeah, well, you're from Mi- you're you're in Michigan, you know, so you're kind of I, off the beaten path. But I've been around, and you know, I've lived on the West Coast, I've lived on the East Coast, I've lived in the Midwest, I've spent a lot of time in the South. The simple way to say it, John, is very regional. Right there, you go, okay. there you go John. It's, it's, right? it's all like, it's all new to me. Yeah, yeah, where you are, right? Like Northeast, old school, like New England, going to be a very different vibe from LA going to be a very different vibe yeah. from like the deep South there. All right. See, not, not only did our audience just get a lesson, John got a lesson. So John, <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I besides, keep having these lessons. Besides so. if Harvard with 747s fly past your window, where, <laughs> where can we find you? So on Twitter, Dr. Jonathan Beal, okay. Instagram, Johnny Beal, J-O-N-N-Y, LinkedIn, don't think I have a handle there. Just got to find me. <laughs> I'll help out and, um, with that. I'll help out. Looks the same as the Instagram. Man, I need to set up a website. This is embarrassing. I've had that on a to-do list for a hell of a long time. But uh, yeah, so you can okay. find me on all the social media places, all the usual places. And our uh, Nick and uh, Nick and my podcast is flourishfmpodcast.com. Got it. Okay. Boys, obviously, I can't thank you enough. I, I would love, if you have one more key takeaway, I always call it the big domino. That one thing, and it could have been something you guys already said, that one thing that if we just tackle this, implement this, it'll make life a little bit easier, some things even unnecessary. What is that one big domino you want our crew to take away with? And while you're thinking about what to say, just to remind you, everyone listening, we're going to have all the show notes, all of the links to Nick and John in, in our show notes. So go to comingupclutch.com. You'll have everything there. Timestamps, links, you name it. It's all going to be right there for you. All right, guys, your big domino. What do you want to leave us with? Oh, well, so I'll, I'll, repeat, I'll repeat something I've kind of already said, but well, or several, I'll tie together several strands. I think that many regrets people have in later life are due to prioritizing the wrong things. And we talked about this earlier you know, a, an excessive emphasis on gaining financial and material gain or building financial and material gain over time at the detriment of focusing on relationships, on your own character, on the things that have meaning for you. Try to recalibrate the balance. So my kind of 
key takeaway that I keep you to focus on is prioritization. Make mm. sure you're prioritizing the things that matter to you most in life and calibrating things accordingly. You're not working 90 hours a week to support your relationships, which continues to be this thing that eludes you. You never reach because you're focusing on this thing to get there, namely accruing more and more wealth, but you're not actually ever getting to the thing you want. You dilute your, your being, you're not being true to yourself. You're convincing yourself you're doing it for that aim. You're actually, you end up on that treadmill. So prioritize things in the ways that matter to you most. Awesome. Nick, you got something yeah, else I'll, you want to add? I'll actually, that. yeah, I'll dovetail right off that and give, a, I think a little bit of how to, and I'll say it kind of simply like intentionality. So being intentional about what your recipe is, being intentional about the ingredients, being intentional about the way you distribute your most precious stuff, your cognitive energy, your physical energy, your emotional energy, right? Like use it in yeah. the ways you really want to and intend to. To me, whether that's, you know, just checking in in a journal once a week, if it's having a calendar system every single day, if, if you are not being sort of like meta, right, right, about your own life and the intentionality yeah. around it, you're opening yourself up to just be a slave to our psychology and a slave to our neurochemistry. And what does that mean? You're going to spend at least half of your day living habitually, right? Mm. Automatically processing what you're doing, kind of zombie mode, kind of mindless mode. And you can still have those moments, but make sure you're having them when you want to and make sure you're having social moments when you want to and make sure you're having vitality moments, right? And workouts when you want to, but like, so good. just be purposeful about it, right? Don't let it happen on accident. It, it feels like doing that turns you into a robot, but the truth is the opposite, right? Like when you just become, like I said, a slave to your psychology, I think that's going to be worse for more people. Love it. Boys, thank you. I, I know we snuck out even more time than we bargained for, but that was great. Thank you. Great I honor you to again, it's been an honor getting to, to work with you and get to know you too. I know that this, it's just the beginning. I'm going to have to con you guys to come back on, on the show, but thanks again, guys. I, I couldn't do this thought leadership without guys like you. So I appreciate not your voice. Yeah. Thank happy you. to be on. And yeah, thanks for having us. We appreciate you as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, J.O. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Dr. Nicole and Dr. Johnny Beal. This episode is over. Get more no BS content to help you master your mind, relationships, and money by hitting subscribe. This is Coming Up Clutch with JR. Thanks for listening.